Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. What happens after you make all of your dreams come true? What if hope is just another form of evil? And are we making life harder than it needs to be? Mark Manson sold millions of copies of his last book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And he's back with a new one called Everything is Fucked. Today, we're gonna talk about why he's out to slaughter our sacred cows, why hope makes us fight one another, and why success tends to make us weak. I gotta ask, why'd you write this book? Like, what was going on in your life? <laughs> you kind of took, I mean, you you break out the the fifty cal and just go to town on a lot of sacred cows. There's a lot. It's a Tarantino movie <laughs> with dead cows, dead sacred cows everywhere. So I just, I was like, all right, what? I'm familiar with this stuff from my own background in Zen and a lot of reading some German philosophers back in the day. But it was like, okay, what's going on in your life that had you? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on what what had you take this subject on oh my god yeah it, it's I, I might steal that that the tarantino <laughs> going tarantino and sacred cats you know it uh two things happen well actually i should say three things happen right. um one i feel like you know subtle art came out maybe i think two months before trump got elected um and i i really feel like 2016 is the year that like the internet broke, um, that social media just fell apart. Like everybody started realizing that how, how all the negative effects that this is having on our culture. And I, and I don't even mean that specifically with Trump. I, I just mean the election in general. Like it was such an ugly cultural moment. Um, and it hasn't really recovered. Mm. And, um, uh, and that same cultural moment has happened in a lot of countries around the world. And I, I noticed this. So that that was kind of a background to all this. It's just like, my God, what the fuck is happening? And um, and I feel like everybody kind of feels that way right now, <laughs> um, regardless of what your politics are. Uh so that was that that was one. The second one was um I uh subtle art 
blew up in 2017 and just started selling an obscene amount of copies and uh, just basically put me in one of those financial situations, like a dream financial situation. Um, and on top of that, it, it, it pretty much every goal that I had for my career as an author, uh, I knocked them all out in like three months. <laughs> you know, so it's like... <laughs> It's like the shit that I, I imagine myself being like 50 and like work, you know, it's like, all right, I'm going to work on this for like 20 years. And then in my 50s, I'm going to like hit these milestones. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Three months, you just bang them all out, your first book. And um, that was, uh, it was actually really disorienting because like it, it's really messed up. Like nobody tells you that when your dreams come true, you you don't have dreams anymore. Uh and you, you don't know what, what to hope for. Mm-hmm. So that actually, it, it became a little bit of a personal crisis. I think 2017 was strangely one of the darkest and most confusing years of my life since I was a teenager, uh, which made no sense because everything was amazing. And, and the worst part was you couldn't, I couldn't like complain to anybody about it because they're like, well, fuck you. You just sold a million books. Like, what do you have to, what do you have to be upset about? Yeah. Um, so, so that was very disorienting and I think I needed to sort through that. Like, what was it that I lost that was so, uh, you know, like what pulled the rug out from under me emotionally and psychologically, uh, with that amount of success? Um, and then the third thing was I, I always go through this period when I finish a book where I feel like very empty. Like I don't like intellectually, like I, I just, I don't know what to think about or like I kind of lose curiosity for a period of time. And, and, um, and I, strangely the thing that, that got me excited again intellectually was, as uh, philosophy. Like I, I, I read some philosophy in college and I like I enjoyed it, even though I didn't really understand a whole lot. Um, and I, I don't know what it was. Somehow I ended up, I, I bought one of Kant's books. Um, the, it's, it's the one referenced in, in the, my new book. Um, I think I got in an argument with a friend or something over something really stupid about like ethics or morality. And he was just shitting left and right on, on Kant. And I was like, <laughs> well, shouldn't we read the guy before we, we just start shitting all over him? And, uh, and yeah, I went out and bought, uh, fundamentals to the metaphysics of morals. And it's like an 80 page book and it just blew my brain wide open. I was like, holy crap, this is so, so deep. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it, I found a lot of inspiration and like philosophy kind of strangely carried me through this period and reignited my, my passion and my curiosity and my excitement for writing again. And, um, so all three of those things kind of, you, you just finished the book. So I'm sure you can see all those three, those three things coming together in the book. I can. Uh, and it really helps to hear this from you. Yeah. You know, I don't know if yeah. there's a way to, you know, hopefully this message will get out more because it, it, it doesn't get revealed you know, your personal, yeah. the, what happened to you personally that, that led up to the book, but it, it, it is a deep book. It's really heavy and yeah. it does take a, take the, take the gun to the sacred cows. And without that, you know, it can kind of be like, well, what's going on here? So I, it's, it brings, it's much more human to me to hear your humanity of like, Hey, I don't really feel like I got everything I ever wanted. And, and then life just, it, it turned into its own dark night. It turned into its own challenge of, 
Yeah. I don't even know if I could talk about this without sounding like a dick, you know? And so I, I, I've experienced versions of that. I've, I work with people that experience versions of that. So this is kind of this private club of like, don't, you know, I can't talk about this, but why the hell am I not feeling better about what I've created? And, and, and then we just start to question everything. It's like, wait a second. Yeah. I, th- I thought if I got to this spot, it was going to be a lot different. Is that kind of what it was? You had an imagination, like it was going to be a little bit different once you got there or if you ever got oh, there. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the thing with, with, dreams right is we never think about what happens after them <laughs> you well, know, in my book like, you know i'm talking i say dreams are assumptions right it's like oh once yeah. once i once that this it's going to be this way we never even it's not even explicit about necessarily what it is yeah. it's just going to be different right yeah but it's funny because when i finally did start talking about it i actually i so i have a num- number of friends here in new york and and like the startup the startup world and uh it was actually there that I found a lot of a lot of people who were like, "Oh yeah, I totally get it." Like guys who, you know, had a startup, they busted their ass for eight years and then exited with millions of dollars, and they're like, "Yeah, the the year after I exited was like one of the darkest periods of my life because it's yeah. like I was 33, I was a millionaire, and I had no reason to get up in the morning." Um, like it's just it's a very weird thing. I'm um, a dragon slayer, and there's no more dragons. It's kind of like yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's it's interesting to hear hear you say that about humanizing the book. I actually in a, in a very early draft, I, I actually wrote up that personal experience in the first chapter. Um, and maybe it's just my insecurity, but I, I removed it because I could just foresee all of the. Uh, one star Amazon reviews saying like <laughs> this privileged guy sold dickhead, five, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like this guy sold five million books and spends the first chapter complaining about it. You know, so it just <laughs> like you know, I'm kind of walking into uh uh the the firing squad on, mm-hmm. on that. So um but it's true. I mean that that is where it came from. I mean success it kind of fucks with you a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I, it, and it's um, you you take a, a you're very you're confident and you're straight in the title. You don't you don't mix things up. It's everything is fucked and it's a it is a book about hope. <laughs> yeah, but it, but there's a sense of like oh it's gonna it's gonna go somewhere and it's gonna bloom and blossom. <laughs> and nope. it's more like a French film, you know. It's, it just, it just uh, but like I said, it's nothing new if you've kind of read into the into some of this stuff before and I, and I appreciate your how forthright you were but i remember I, I i emailed you yesterday when i finished it and i was like jesus fucking christ man yeah it was a punch yeah. in the gut and a punch in the chest so let's go down this road a little bit because i there's not much that we can really pick apart here in 20 30 minutes i you know but i i i do want to kind of go down a couple of roads here and just explore some of the the pieces that we've got i mean the first one is What's wrong with hope? You know, I, I remember reading Fernando <laughs> Flores talk a while back, you know, his famous quote of hope is the raw material of losers. But in your yep. book, you take a little step further. You say, what if hope is not the antidote to evil? What if hope is just another form of evil? So, okay, let's go. We got a cow in the sights. <laughs> <laughs> let's knock it down. <laughs> um, one of, one of I, I pull a little switcheroo on people. You know, I open up the book with a Holocaust story, which um, I did that for a few reasons. One is to just kind of lay out, I feel like the Holocaust is is the most kind of universally accepted narrative of evil in our culture. 
You know, it's it like that. That is probably the one thing. If you ever meet somebody who doesn't think the Holocaust was evil, like that is an awful fucking human being. So we all agree on that. So I wanted to because we're wading in the, the whole book wades into the waters of like ethics and morality and like what is good and what is valuable. Um, I wanted to start somewhere grounded on on solid earth that we all can agree you know, like this is bad. Um, and I use that to kind of frame the whole introduction of the concept of hope and why we, why we need hope and why hope, you know, gives our life a sense of meaning and all this stuff. And then about halfway through the book, you know, I kind of, kind of pull the rug out from people and I say, you know, it's not just hope isn't, it's not just hope that defeated Hitler. It's, Hope is also what created the Nazis. Hope is what created Stalin, communism. You know, Stalinism. Uh, Their hope, hope is for what, a world without Jews. Their hope for a world without, you know, without the enemies that they had. Exactly. Um, so hope is is it's like anything else in life. Like you can have there are healthy there are healthy forms of love and there are destructive forms of love and there are healthy forms of hope and there are destructive forms of hope and um, I think kind of the argument I try to make in the first half of the book is that, you know, all of us are, are, are in this place in our culture right now where, where it feels like everything is fucked. Everything's going to hell. Uh, and we're desperate for some piece of hope, some news, some like, tell me things are getting better. Tell me things are going to be okay. And, uh, and I, I kind of just wanted to make the point that like, that's part of the problem is that that desperate desire for for some piece of news or some event that affirms your beliefs of what what is going what is good in the world uh, that desperation is part of what is driving us apart and creating all these problems in our in our social fabric um, how so can you can you how do we identify that i, I cuz i can I, I think we can all understand okay well that's bad hope and this is good hope but what does it look like in our own life when we're treading into this unhealthy form of, of hope, as you talk about, I think it's the, so the, basically the more desperately we cling to our hopes, uh, the more certain we feel and the less open we are to alternatives. So, uh, if you truly believe that, um, you know, let's say the country is going to hell, uh, and it's like we're on the brink of civil war or political crisis, um, you are actually going to be a more fervent supporter of whoever your side is. And you're going to be less amenable to – because to be open to dialogue with the other side is to uh, let go of that hope, is to hold that hope more loosely, um, which means basically just letting more fear in. Um so it, 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 it plays out on a social level, it plays out on a personal level too, you know, in relationships. I think one of the most damaging things about in personal relationships is having this unrealistic fantasy about your partner. Um, you, you have this fantasy that they're going to fix you or make you happy or that you're going to fix them and then you'll be happy. And, and it's, again, it's that, that sneaky hope that enters that gets injected into um your decision making and your how you evaluate your life uh 
that it causes all these problems. It's like you don't know if your partner needs to be fixed. You don't know if you need to be fixed. You, all you know is that you're together and, you know, you either feel good or you feel bad in each consecutive moment. Um, and you can make a choice. You know, you can do do a good thing or you can do a bad thing. And And it's like hope doesn't even have to enter the equation if we don't want it to. I wonder how much this overlaps with um, one of my coaches, uh, Phil Stutz. Uh, he talks about exoneration. He says that we're all kind of buying into this expectation that if we follow the rules and we do what we're supposed to do, we get the money, we get the power, we get the women or whatever that is, then we'll be free. We'll be free yeah. from uncertainty, pain, and effort. And so we keep thinking as long as pain keeps showing up, we must be doing it wrong. So we yep. double down and we keep going and we keep pushing and, and we make ourselves more miserable. Something must be wrong with me. Something's wrong with life. Something's unfair. And we it robs us of the ability to actually enjoy who we are and what we have. Um, yep. Keyword there is expectation. Are, are you swapping those words there? Hope and expectation? Like, okay, in the future, it's I expect it to be this way because I buy into these beliefs and I buy into these behaviors? Absolutely. I, I think hope... The kind of the way I define hope in the first chapter is that it, it is an expectation of a valuable future, of, of a future that is better than today. So I hate um, today, but tomorrow is going to, I'm banking on tomorrow. I don't, I'm not really happy right. today, but I'm banking on a better tomorrow. Right. So it's, you know, like the most, a very simple superficial example is like, is like, man, I really want a new car. Like a new car would make my life so much better. That is an expectation of something of better value in the future. And, um, and as everybody knows, that it's those simple hopes and expectations that get us in the trouble. It's the same thing, you know, it's like, man, if I, if I was just married or if I just had, a, if I had kids, like, man, my life would be so much better. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you apply it to anything because <laughs> it is like, it is the fundamental process of the human of our psychology, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have to have some sort of vision of a better future, um, in our mind, but how attached we are to that vision, we, we get to decide. And, um, and when we attach you know, our, our being to that, right. Whether it, yes. it's like, we can still play for stuff, right. We can still, Hey, sure. I want to write my book. I want to get a car. I want to have kids and everything, but we got to watch out for where we attach our well being to that. Yes. That expectation or that hope. Yeah, it's it's basically it's where we attach our meaning, you know. So mm. it's like, look, a new car is great, but it's not going to make you a better person. It's not going to make you a happier person. Um, and I think we just have to be realistic about that. Uh, and and if you extrapolate that out across, you know, kind of all human endeavor, you could say the same thing about, um, you know, our economy, a business growing, a political system. You know, it, it's there's. It's when somebody, when the right is in charge, everybody on the left is like, man, if we could just get rid of these righties, everything would be better. And it's vice versa when the left is in charge. And it, it's like, it doesn't actually uh, fix anything. I mean, I mean, things change, but it doesn't necessarily, like, like the title says, everything is fucked. You know, so no matter what, everything is always, there's always going to be a sense of problem and a vision for a better future, no matter what we do. Okay. Um, let's take on another cow, another sacred cow. Let's talk about religion. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, you, and, and you've got three different types that you talk about here, but so, yeah. but from your perspective, what qualifies something as a religion? So I, I basically expand the definition of religion to be 
so broad that it kind of encapsulates almost almost anything. Um, basically, my argument is is that uh, a religion is a faith is a is a faith based belief that something matters, um, and most people find that that faith that faith based belief through some belief in like a God or Jesus or Muhammad or whoever. Um, but even secular and atheist people do this too. It's like, I have, I have a faith-based belief that a certain moral code is better for humanity. Um, a lot of people have a faith-based belief that, um, you know, that they love their, their family and their kids. And if they, if they're a good person, then, you know, that they will live the good life. All this stuff is, is based on faith. Like you can't prove or disprove that you're a good father. You can't prove or disprove that you made a difference in the world. Um, all these things are just kind of invented in our own minds. And so in that sense, uh, I argue that we're all religious to varying degrees. It's just that some people base their religion on kind of supernatural, uh, beliefs, whereas most of our religious beliefs are actually, not supernatural. They're, they're natural beliefs. They're, you know, it's, I, I, I classify like capitalism and communism as religious systems. It's, um, I mean, we have evidence that capitalism has been superior, but it's not, um, ultimately it's the belief that it's the best system for society. It's a faith-based belief. Um, and then same thing with interpersonal relationships. Like it's my, my love for my wife, the the idea that this relationship is important and gives my life meaning, it is a faith-based belief. Like it's, I could be single my whole life and live an important life. You know, I could be married six different times and have a fulfilling life, you know, but it's, I've chosen to commit to this person. And my belief is that if I stay committed to her, then it will fill my life with value and meaning. And um, so even on an interpersonal level, there's like these like little mini religious beliefs that we have. Um, and so the, the reason I frame it that way is because I think it's much easier to talk about human systems in general uh, when you see that it's all kind of the same thing. Because whatever we have faith in, uh, we tend to look for other people who have faith in the same thing. You know, we gravitate towards one another. Um, and then once we come together, we form our own like little religious cults together. Um, it's, and we, we all decide like, Hey, these are the good guys. Those are the bad guys. This is, this is the, these are, we all share our hopes for the future that, and, and we want, this is how we want the world to be. Um, and it, and it can be something as simple as a family. It could be followers of a sports team it could be political parties or it could be you know buddhism or islam or, or whatever um it's all kind of the same thing no matter so we how find some some kind of thing to say hey this is what gives my life meaning and purpose and then i find my tribe around that and then yeah. it, but it sounds like that the the shadow side is that then i stop looking or i stop being curious about others i can actually start to demonize others I can start yeah. to have a bias against others or a bias towards my own. I want to confirm my own beliefs. And, and what happens there when we start to play that game? We, we need conflicts. Like you can't, this is one of the things I talk about. One of the kind of the criticisms of hope is that hope 
implies to have hope for something implies that there's something wrong with the present your present state the why present have world. hope if there's not a problem here and now why have hope yeah. for a better future if if right now is is, yeah. is just fine by definition to hope for something you have to reject something that's current you know to hope for something in the future you have to reject something that's currently happening today is that true um, or can i just hope that it maintains like things are good today and i want it to maintain that well, to hope for that, you would have to reject everything that's not today. So, okay, I don't want to go too deep here. I just, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I want to play that. Okay. <laughs> I can but see I mean, where this is where it turns I mean, into a week long conversation. All right, got it. Yeah, <laughs> this is when we, we 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 become like stoner kids in a dorm room. Uh, <laughs> but like, do police dogs? Did police dogs freak out other dogs? Like, did the dog? You know. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true. It's the cops, you know. (laughs) You know, by definition, to to maintain hope in some future something, we need to reject something that exists today. Okay. Um, And so it's that rejection. Like ultimately, it's it's by that rejection that that conflict actually becomes something that we need as humans to feel meaningful and purposeful life. Um. And that's really fucking depressing. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, if, if you've meditated for any amount of time, if you if, like when I watch my brain, it creates conflict. It needs it needs conflict to exist because the, yep. the whole threat in meditation is you're going to drop into formlessness and the ego doesn't have any place there. So it freaks out. It's like, let's let's create a, a drama, some kind of thing to play out in my head so that I can exist here. So death yeah. is like without conflict. There's an essentially I, I cease to exist, or our group cease ceases to exist. Seems like there's an externalization of that. Without somebody to fight against, we've got nothing to unite against, and we don't we don't exist anymore. We lose. Yeah, we lose it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's um, you know, I my my background is I mean, I grew up Christian, but I I studied and practiced a lot of Buddhism in my younger years. And, and I actually, there's a, there's an end note in that chapter that I point out that this kind of cycle of hope conflict that I talk about is, uh, pretty analogous to the, the Buddhist concept of like samsara of this like cycle of attachment, conflict, destruction, new attachment, and that it, it just kind of never ends. So yeah, it's, it's, kind of the sad and upsetting con- conclusion is that it's uh some sense of conflict is built into us like we need some sense of conflict to feel as though our life is meaningful and purposeful and and that really sucks that 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 actually puts us in a really tricky situation of you need to choose that conflict very very carefully or just to recognize that when we hope for things we we set ourselves up to create conflict i think that's the yes. point that it might might be new news to us as we read this book is like I didn't know that when I hoped for a better future for XYZ that I suddenly created a polarity. Now I've got an enemy yep. or now I'm working against something and and I've I've invited conflict into my life when I when I set out to harmlessly hope for this better future. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. You talk about pain, you talk about pain being the constant. That's a real fun one. Um <laughs> <laughs> I went. Let me find this section. I went on a. I went on a podcast the other day. 
<laughs> it's funny, man. Like I must you have been do really... you do manage to make this funny. I gotta say, like uh, it is yeah. fun. My favorite, my new term, my new favorite term is douche canoe. That I got that one. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> that was a good one. But, <laughs> You somehow yeah, so, make make constant pain seem really enjoyable and fun. I that was that was. <laughs> yeah, it's like a fun pessimism. Uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, I, I'll read an excerpt really quick. I went on a podcast the other day, and the first thing the guy did is he read this these couple paragraphs. Uh, Look, time out for a second. Let me be the one to break the bad news to you. Human pain is like a game of whack-a-mole. Every time you knock down one kind of pain, another one pops up. And the faster you whack them, the faster they come back. The pain may get better. It may change shape. It may be less catastrophic each time. But it will always be there. It's part of us. It is us. A lot of religious spokespeople out there make a lot of money claiming that they can beat the, beat the pain of the whack-a-mole game for you once and for all. But the truth is that there is no end to the pain moles. The faster you hit them, the faster they come back. And that's how all the douche canoes in, re- in the religion game stay in the business so long. Instead of admitting that the game is rigged, that our human nature is so fundamentally designed to generate pain, they blame you for not winning the game. Or worse, they blame some nebulous them. If we could just get rid of them, we'll all stop suffering. Pinky swear. But that doesn't work either. That just transfers the pain from one population to another and amplifies it. Right, that, right now, Robert Smith is jerking off. Right, he's Robert Smith in the cure is. <laughs> he's getting the lotion out. He's like, oh yeah. But yeah, I go on this guy's show and he like read that and he's like, "Why even talk to you? <laughs> like, if we can't do anything, like, why, why are we even, why are we even having this conversation?" Yeah, well, why are in your in your mind there's there is something. There is yes. something that you're hoping for, and you talk about that at the end of the book. I don't want to. I don't want to reveal that, but yeah. but there is there is. I think you you're pointing to we can have a different relationship to pain. Yes. Instead of seeking and buying into people's manipulations to escape it, and hey, I must be doing it wrong if I'm not escaping it. You're offering another path, and we got to be careful here because it can turn into another fucking trap. Exactly. Right. Okay. So without turning it into another path, what is this alternate relationship to pain that you see that, that, why is the pursuit of happiness something we really want to keep an eye on? Because it's the funny thing about pain is that the more you avoid it, it doesn't lessen pain. It actually, like I, I have a chapter called pain is universal constant. And it's because when your life gets more comfortable and secure, your you don't your pain doesn't drop at all. You actually just become more sensitive to it. So, uh, what used to upset you, like maybe losing your job, used to like the amount of pain you felt from like losing your job or something. Like if your life was just a total mess, um, once you like get your shit together and get more comfortable, uh, you know something like your seamless order arriving incorrect, like will upset you just as much as, you know, say losing all your money used to years and years ago. You don't know how many 55-year-old fragile rich guys I talk to, right? They've, oh, God, they've reached this imagine. level of success, and i got to watch out. I can turn into that, too. But it's just like, okay, I've, I've arrived. I've got all this power. I've got all these resources. I've got all this reach. And now I'm just turning into this fragile wuss. Like, I, I'm yep. so afraid to take chances. I can't tolerate any kind of discomfort. I won't do anything to that might make me look like an asshat. 
and a failure. Yeah. And it's just, we get fragile as we get older instead of, wow, I've, 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 I've become this powerful person. No, no, no. You, you're just going to sit on that couch and rot now. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the pain level remains the same all the time. And so the more comfortable we get, the more sensitive we become. Uh, and the opposite is true as well, is that the worse things get, the more resilient we become, uh, or the more pain we experience, the more resilient we become. Uh, there's And there's just a million examples of this. I mean, I, everything from, like I mentioned in the book, like I got a, I have a big tattoo on my right arm and, and it's, uh, you know, it took like eight hours. And I remember when I first sat down, like the, the needle hurt so much that I was like, I can't believe I just signed up for eight hours of this shit. Like, <laughs> I was like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, and by the third hour, I was dozing off and taking a nap. Um, so it's just our body, our both our body and our mind adjust to keep our, keep us at a level of mild dissatisfaction and mild discomfort, no matter what our circumstances. And if we're not careful, if we as a population and as a culture get too comfortable and get too spoiled and entitled, um, we will start seeing large degrees of pain where they're actually very small, which is in a nutshell what I think is kind of happening in our culture today. Um, which is another reason why I opened the book with a Holocaust story. Cause it's, I know a lot of people are going to buy this book. A lot of people who see the title and buy the book because of the title, they're buying it because they're under the assumption of everything's completely fucked today. Everything we know and care about is we're losing, you know, please like tell me how things are going to be better. And you open up with a Holocaust story. It's like, wake up perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Quick bitch and have some appreciation for, uh, for where you are. So we don't want to run away from pain. We've got to be smart. I like how you said, we got to choose our pain wisely, but mm. let's, let's give up this hope or this expectation that a successful life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life, whatever you want to call it means that we're mm -hmm. going to finally escape pain. And that when we try to escape pain, that just invites more pain. Yep. It makes us more, and it makes more, make us, makes us more fragile. Uh, and it has this, for me, what I noticed is we just stop engaging the things that actually mean something to us because all of those things are outside of our comfort zone. All of those things require effort. All of those things mean we're going to step into uncertainty. All of those things mean we're going to fuck up from time to time. And if we're not willing to, to go through those experiences, then shit, we, we just, we just go backwards. We, we, we shrivel up. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. You talk about deserving, that you talk about this this desire to equalize, and I don't know how deep we need to go into that, but I was talking to the group that I, uh, my coaching group this morning, and we were, we were talking about this notion of deserving and how if we don't feel that we deserve X, Y, Z in our life, whether it's pain mm -hmm. or it's a reward, especially if, we're, if, we're, if I'm working with a client and we're creating something... If they don't feel they deserve it, then they're going to invent struggles. They're going to invent obstacles. They're going to invent things to put in the way so that they, it doesn't happen. And I see this a lot yep. with guys who think life needs to be hard. Like if, if it was easy, then fucking everybody would do it. Like there's this, this kind of addiction to hard. Um, yeah. Not, yeah. Difficulty, I should say. So it's like, what, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, hey, whatever. But, but that, that idea it. that I, it needs to be difficult, that somehow sure. difficult means that I deserve it. So, What's your take on that? How does that kind of fit in here when when we need to equalize things so that we don't believe we deserve shit in our life? And I just see that that creates a lot of pain and, and creates a lot of unnecessary suffering in our life. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is that I draw a distinction. You know, there are kind of two parts of our brain. I, I call it the thinking brain and the feeling brain, but, you know, you could call it a lot of different things. But basically, our thinking brain is the kind of in charge of like making lateral connections, uh, making logical connections between events and experiences. And then our feeling brain is what decides what is valuable and what's not valuable. Um, so, you know, my, my thinking brain understands that a baseball thrown at me is the trajectory is going to, you know, hit me in the head or whatever. Um, but my feeling brain is the one that decides that because that hurts, it, it is a bad thing. And the person who threw it is a bad person. Um, or my feeling brain might decide that I'm a bad person and I deserved it. I had that coming. Yeah. So exactly. I, I, I had it coming. Um, so, and the problem with the feeling brain, so the feeling brain makes all these decisions about how valuable we are, how valuable the people in our lives are, how valuable the world is. Um, but it's illogical, it's irrational and, and it's unconscious. So we don't have direct access to it. So it's, this is why this sort of work is so difficult because we're, Basically, we're all a bunch of thinking brains, conscious thinking brains here, like very rationally, logically trying to sort out uh, all these evaluations that our feeling brains have made about ourselves, um, made about ourselves in relations to women, relations to our career, relations to you know money, family, whatever. Um, and so it's, it's extremely difficult to untangle. And the thing is, is like you said, if my feeling brain just decides... Like this is so. This is from my personal experience. Is that my feeling brain just because of shit that happened in my childhood decided that I I didn't deserve love from women, um, and so pretty much through my adolescence and most of my early adulthood, I would consist every time a woman would start to get close to me, I would start having these emotional outbursts that were really irrational and actually self sabotaging. Like I would just become a huge dickhead. Um, and sabotage my relationships. And, uh, it took a lot of therapy. It took a lot of introspection. It took a lot of like, you know, dealing with my shit, talking things through with the women I was with to kind of sort that out in myself and realize that I had this wound, um, and that my feeling because of the wound, my feeling brain had decided that, um, you know, either women, uh, were not deserving of me or I was not deserving of women. And it, and it just created this like very ugly dynamic in, in all my romantic relationships for many years. It seems like there's a tie in here with um, that, that desire for conflict, right? So if I don't feel like I deserve X, Y, Z, whether it's financial success or love or recognition, appreciation, or just even security in life, I'll create the conflict now, I may hope for that. I may say I want those things. I may even be yep. actively trying to make it happen, but there's the saboteur working to say, wait a second, that's not going to, you can't actually have it. And I, I just see yep. this a lot where guys just can't, I just can't seem to figure out why this isn't happening, why it isn't working. And I, you, yeah. you, this, this, it can be, you can call it shame, low self esteem, whatever, but there's this aspect in there is like, I've just seen it's like, it's really hard to work around this thing if you don't get it out in the open and take a look at it and see just how hard we make our lives, we, 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 how much we work against us. Life's already difficult enough, but how much we, we, can, we can become our own obstacle in that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, like you said, that, that process of getting it into the light of like bringing it out, talking about it, being, you know, accepting it. What that process is, is it's basically the thinking brain taking that experience and rewriting the meaning behind it to create a new sense of value, a new sense of self-worth. Um, and so it's, you know, the way I frame it is that it's, it's the way to heal ourselves is to kind of get a dialogue between these two brains is, is to, to integrate our, our logical self and conscious self with our illogical and irrational self. Um, and it's not easy. It's, it's, it's really complicated. It's really messy. Yeah. We had Jonathan Haidt on here uh, a while back. We talked about the elephant and the rider, kind of a similar yep. modality. You, you, you referred to that in your book too. But yeah, how we think we're all rational, but really the rational is following the 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 feeling, and you you call it the clown car when the when the feeling <laughs> when the feeling guy overruns the thinking guy, then then we're off. To, it's it's uh, clowns. It's 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 it gets nuts. Uh, yeah, we can certainly yeah. see that in others. It's kind of hard for us to recognize when we're on, in our own clown car. Uh, oh, absolutely, because we, we all we all think. I actually I actually kind of poke fun in in one section of the book. You know, it's it's. I like tell the reader, I'm like, you're, you are the thinking brain reading this right now. And of course you think you're in charge because you think you're just fucking great, you know, like, <laughs> but it, it's true. We, we all, all of our conscious minds, you know, overestimate ourselves. Um, the, the analogy I use is that most of us think that our thinking brain is driving and our pesky feeling brain is like a loud, obnoxious child in the passenger seat. And we're like telling them to shut up. Um, but it's, it's actually, uh, the opposite. The feeling brain is driving and the thinking brain is sitting in the passenger seat, imagining that they're in charge and that they're deciding where the, where, where the car goes. This book is definitely a treat for the thinking brain. I, I It's one of those like, hey, I'm fucking smart, man. I'm reading this shit. This has got a lot of good stuff. Like, <laughs> uh, we, we've been kind of, you know, playfully talking about how dark this book is. And I, I don't want to give that impression that it's, 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 it's that difficult. Um, it just deals with some difficult stuff. It deals with some sacred stuff. Yeah. And especially if that, if we're banking on a lot, we've really invested a lot into these, these religions, as you say, whether it's money or whatever it might be. Um, it can, it can be very, very challenging to, to consider that we, that we might want to look in a different direction and you bring a, you bring a big, big stick to those things too. So what is it that, that you, like when you, when somebody reads this book, what do you really want for them? What, what's the thing that you want them to to realize or start to practice on the other side of reading this book. It's one thing to go in there and lay waste to these <laughs> to these sacred cows, yeah. but what is what's the ultimate? I know you want something else. What is it? Sure. I well, I think I think there are practical lessons kind of sprinkled throughout. So I, I think there. I think I have a, a a different take on say self discipline than most people, um, like how to develop self discipline and willpower than most people. Um, I think there's my take on resilience and why, how, why and how to build resilience is a little bit different than most people. Um, but I, I also, I, you know, it's, I always think, even though I get classified as self-help, um, you know, that, that moniker always bugs me a little bit. I, I don't like being in the prescriptive business. I like being in the descriptive business. I like pointing out how our minds work how our brains work and where we get in the trouble with ourselves. Um, 
and and people can can take that and use it however you know it fits their life especially a book as broad as this you know it's that's the other thing i guess that was kind of influenced by the success of subtle art is i was super surprised after subtle art a lot of uh uh a lot of like christian people like pastors ministers um a lot of muslims love the book they see that they see their religion you know, reflected in some of the messages and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, my politics lean left and most of my readership is left wing. Um, I, I started getting invited on the conservative talk radio shows, uh, which really surprised me. And they love the book. They absolutely love the book. Well, it's a big um, message so, of personal responsibility. And yeah, and, absolutely. And, yeah. Um, so I, I really wanted to write and I feel like a book, like there, we so need a book today that, is able to to talk about what's going on in our culture um, without taking a side. Um, like I feel very, very few people are in a place to do that or are able to do that. And um, and I wanted to take a stab at it because I think it's important and I think it's important that people, no matter, like you said, no matter what they subscribe to politically or religiously, um, get something that is going to make them reflect on their beliefs, their behaviors, and their assumptions about others, essentially. I was really appreciative, you know, when, when people, uh, I get asked about this masculinity stuff a lot, just for the nature of having a show for men. And it's just like, it's mm. not about, I don't, I don't see the issues being about masculine feminine. It's more of like, who's mature and immature. Like exactly. whoever's showing, and, and that was a huge part of your book. And I was like, thank fucking God, you, you brought a yeah. real rigor to that conversation, you backed it up with research much more than I would have. But I was just like, thank you for that. Because yeah. when we act like kids, we're dickheads to each other. It doesn't matter yep. what you've got in your pants or who you identify as. And when we, when we can be adults, then we can hold a higher set of, we can hold a lot more perspectives and we can treat each other one from a better stance. And so you, you clearly point out that, Hey, when we act like adults, we, when we bring some maturity to these things, Oh wow, there's a whole all, there's a whole different thing. So it's not about left, right, up, down, whatever that. It's just a matter of like let's let's bring some maturity to these conversations, and everything will take care of itself much more easily from that perspective. A absolutely, and, and I think you know I think the connection that I made that to my knowledge I haven't seen anywhere else is that you know everybody rants about social media and everybody rants about how terrible the news media is these days, and and I I think what what is missed is that it's not necessarily um, the the platforms themselves that are causing the problems. It's that the nature of the technology and the the amount of comfort that our technology has been developed to to provide um, makes us all juvenile. Like it encourages juvenile behavior. It encourages juvenile thinking uh, because juvenile thinking is comfortable. It's not. Being an adult is difficult. Well, it's it also requires... the lowest common denominator. It's like, okay, we can yeah. all meet here. Yeah, and it's and it, it's kind of scary because it's it's. I mean, you on this on the on the same level, like you, you can't really blame the people for developing the technologies either. Like the you know everybody, it's it's cool now for everybody to like to shit on Zuckerberg and Twitter and all these people, but it's like they thought they were doing a good thing too because it's they were operating under the assumption that if you make communication and connect like connectivity 
easier and simpler for people and more comfortable for people, good things will happen. Adults, and it's, let's be clear, adults. <laughs> if you make yeah. it clearer for adults, it'll, it'll, it yeah. can be a good thing, right? But it, it's what they, what they didn't realize is that, A, you've got the pain's a universal constant. So the more comfortable you make things for people, the more they'll find problems and shit that doesn't matter. And, and B it's, uh, it's the, just the, the nature of our, of how we interact with each other today encourages a, a juvenile level of thinking, um, which you, yeah, nothing works when we're all a bunch of fucking kids throwing, yeah. throwing food at each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that, that you brought that challenge to look at things more vertically, like, okay, where are we taking our stance there? Because to me, like, that's the big key, you know, it's like yeah. anything, it, it, it's a it's a huge, huge step, so, beautiful. Okay, the book is Everything is Fucked, a, uh, a book about hope. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.